Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our post-NBA draft power rankings. This is our second set of NBA power rankings. So this is a chance to see if we actually changed anything to our power rankings any teams that we included, any teams we left out. So, Jalen, instead of wasting any more time, let's get into it. What is your post-NBA draft power ranking? Yeah, man, this this list right here, man, does it look way different from the first go-around. So just for a little bit of context, because any listeners who might not have listened to our initial power rankings, this was previously – Um, This was prior to the draft, and um, it was really just an initial reaction to the um, 2020-2021 season being announced, and we kind of just decided that we wanted to look at all the the landscape of the league. Um, So for my preseason power rankings, I initially in the 1.0 had the Los Angeles Lakers at number one, the Golden State Warriors at two, Brooklyn Nets at three, LA Clippers at four, and Boston Celtics at five. It's not like that anymore. (laughs) <laughs> to put it blatantly honest. So um, instead of explaining our picks initially, we're just going to list them out and then we'll kind of discuss some of our similarities and differences after. So my honorable mention was the Portland Trailblazers um, as the quote-unquote sixth team. Um, at number five, I have the LA Clippers. Um, actually, rotate that. At number five, I have the Milwaukee Bucks. At number four, I have the LA Clippers. At number three, I still have the Brooklyn Nets. At number two... I have the Philadelphia 76ers. And at number one, I still have the Los Angeles Lakers. All right. So for my number five, I have the Philadelphia 76ers. For my number four, I have the Milwaukee Bucks. For number three, I had the Miami Heat. For number two, I have the Los Angeles Lakers. And at number one, I have the Brooklyn Nets. And my honorable mention, I agree with you, is the Portland Trailblazers. So just as context for Ryan's as well, initially he had at number five, the Milwaukee Bucks, at number four, the Boston Celtics, at number three, the Los Angeles Lakers, at number two, the Miami Heat, and maintain consistency in terms of having the Brooklyn Nets as the best team in the NBA. So Ryan, let's start right there because I have Brooklyn at three for some reason, despite the fact that I thought they they did get better to a certain extent, I still had them at number three. Um, but you have them at number one. What is it that has you so high on the Brooklyn Nets going into this season to the point that even with all the moves we've seen, you still have it pivot and don't say Kevin Durant. <laughs> all right. So I will avoid trying to say that Kevin Durant <laughs> is the reason why I put Brooklyn at number one, but I want to look past that. Um, of course, Kevin Durant is a great player. Um, But he also has Kyrie Irving, who is a great partner, who is a great um, basketball player as well. Then you look at the rest of the team, and it's Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen. Um, You just re-signed Joe Harris. You just traded for Landry Shamet. You traded the 19th overall pick, which was Sadiq Bey to the Pistons, which makes sense considering that you re-signed Joe Harris. 
But then you go into the draft and you pick up Reggie Perry out of Mississippi State. I think that's a very, very good pick. The Nets need front court help. And I think that uh, Reggie Perry is a good guy to have coming off the bench to pair with a guy like uh, Jared Allen. Um, I think in terms of what Brooklyn has, this team should be number one. This team should be the best team in the league. And now imagine the fact that they could still get James Harden. It's not completely off the table. Um, There's still trade rumors that um, James Harden could go to Brooklyn. The Nets are his top team. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility considering we don't know what Houston is going to look like at the start of the season. And so that, okay, so that's where I want to, I want to piggyback off of that last point right there. That's the reason why I have them at number three is because of the fact that the James Harden thing is still up in the air in terms of making a transaction with them in terms of having to move on from guys like Jared Allen, um, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, maybe even a guy um, in his second year like Nicholas Claxton, who they have a, uh, they, they have a lot of belief in. They were talking about a lot throughout um, the time after the bubble in terms of what his improvement is slowly starting to develop into um, maybe even a pick or two future wise. I, I, I do think that they would significant, significantly have to move on from certain pieces, which knocks down their depth a little bit. I think they increase from a talent standpoint, but I think their depth is knocked down. But here's the thing, even if they don't make, whether they make the trade for James Harden or not, my biggest concern for them is what does the rotation look like? What does the starting lineup look like? I feel like we can already pencil in Kyrie. I think we could already pencil in KD. Does Spencer did when he started the two? Do you start a, 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 a wing prospect in Karis Levert at the two? Um, can Spencer Dinwiddie and Kyrie Irving even coexist on the court at the same time, considering that that was a bit of a struggle in terms of the lineup last season before Kyrie Irving got injured? There's a question as to how many how many minutes or what the starting role for a guy or what the kind of role for a guy in Joe Harris who just got a, a, a four-year deal but near eight nearing 80 million to be a three-point shooter and shot and and shot creator around the rim. You can't bring a guy like that off the bench. Um, he can't be a bench unit. And I also don't think a guy like Karis LeVert with the type of talent that he has is a guy you should be bringing off the bench as some kind of like six-man scoring option because I feel like that actually fits more of the bill of a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie. But I feel as though he's being underutilized in his ability to be able to run an offense. There's still a lot of questions as to who should be starting at center between Jared Allen and um, DeAndre Jordan. I feel like it's Jared Allen, but if you look at the way they played most of last season, it seemed like they were giving DeAndre Jordan most of the minutes, despite the fact that Jared Allen has more of the upside. So it's a lot of stuff in terms of the chemistry aspect of this team that I have a lot of concerns about in terms of how they'll be able to mesh. I think the talent, I mean, I think this is a, this is a good old great case of, Philadelphia 76ers syndrome in terms of what we saw a couple uh, a season ago maybe even maybe even two seasons ago when you see a collection of talent where you see Ben Simmons you see Joel Embiid you see um Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris or you see Al Horford and Tobias Harris you see that collection of talent and you say they have the most talented starting five in the NBA what did that do for them very little of anything because from a chemistry aspect, the puzzle pieces just didn't fit together. 
My concern about these guys is I feel like the talent is there, but until somebody can define a, a define or come up with a definitive lineup that meshes, it just seems like a lot of talent with significant depth with but with no role as, um ascension. I think there's no roles assigned to anybody in a way that truly makes this team dangerous because everybody is trying to figure out where they fit in. And the only guys not worried about that are Katie and Kyrie, who are the alpha males on the team. So I see where you're coming from. And I understand they have some chemistry issues between Spencer Dinwiddie and Kyrie Irving. I would have to um, look at those concerns and say that, what if the James Harden trade goes through? That would kind of resolve those issues, considering that your starting lineup now consists of Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, and Jared Allen. Now, the trade with James Harden is in question. So I would have to think that maybe Karis LeVert starts at shooting guard with Spencer Dinwiddie coming off the bench. Obviously, I think that you know the value of Spencer Dinwiddie I don't think that changes. I still think that Spencer Dinwiddie is a very valuable contributor to this team. Karis LeVert fits the shooting guard position better than Spencer Dinwiddie. And I think that when you're talking about the, the, the chemistry issues, I think Karis LeVert and Kyrie Irving coexist better on the court. If you're talking about who would run the second unit, without a doubt, it's Spencer Dinwiddie because I think the second unit may be able to produce there's a chance that Brooklyn potentially has two solid starting fives. And I think that, yes, the chemistry issues still are there, but I just think it, it, it changes if James Harden becomes a Brooklyn net. I mean, I think the biggest thing about it is right. Like if Jim, if James Harden is brought in, like, yes, it knocks down their depth, but their talent level does significantly rise in a more constructive environment. I think the depth part hurts them a tad bit, but I think that's a team that's way too talented not to make the playoffs. And by the time they make the playoffs, their depth concerns won't be nearly as much of an issue. So I'm high on the Brooklyn Nets too. Don't get me don't don't get it twisted. Just because I don't have them at number one doesn't see doesn't mean I don't see them as one of the better teams in the East. I mean, based on my list, they're the second best team in the East from a talent perspective. Um, in terms of how the talent not only is accumulated, but also how it all fits together. So I mean, I definitely agree that the Brooklyn Nets are one of the most dangerous teams in the in, in the conference and definitely up there in terms of um, being a significant threat um, to the entire league. Sticking with the Eastern Conference, though, right? So I'm on the Milwaukee Bucks bandwagon a bit, and I know that the bias comes from acquiring the homie Drew Holiday, who I can't shut up about when it comes to this podcast. So I'm not going to push push those buttons too much because you know how I feel about that guy in terms of how they were able to upgrade from a guy like Eric Bledsoe and honestly, George Hill as well, basically, in that exchange. In order to acquire a guy in Drew Holiday, I think picking up a guy like DJ Augustine was also huge. They weren't able to get Bogdan Bogdanovich in terms of that sign-and-trade scenario that was mentioned early on um, in the offseason. But I think being able to hold on to a guy like Dante DiVincenzo was really good. And they still have Brooke Lopez. And they did all of that without having to give up a guy in Chris Middleton. So you have a really significant starting lineup 
where you could have DJ Augustine, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Brooke, um, Brooke Lopez as your starting low, um, lineup. And that's pretty potent. Pretty potent in the Eastern Conference in terms of having shot creators, having guys who crash the glass, having significant scoring, and the defensive acumen is there, especially through Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think those three individually as one-on-one defenders are crazy, and and being under the umbrella of a team defense sounds insane. So here's the here's my question to you with the Bucks, right? Is missing out on Bogdan as big of a hit as a lot of analysts have made it seem as though it is? Tony Kornheiser went on the PTI and said that if they do not, if they do not inquire Bogdan Bogdanovich, that they're done in terms of being able to be in the mix for retaining a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is a pending free agent as of next season. So, is this is this loss of Bogdan? Because we have to assume with the fact that Atlanta extended a um a offer sheet to him with uh the Sacramento Kings Sacramento Kings having to match within the next 24 to 48 hours, that Milwaukee is probably not in play to bring him in. So is missing out on him as big of a hit as a guy like Tony Korn- Kornheiser believes, or do you think that this is something that could be somewhat of a blessing in disguise in terms of being able to hold onto a guy like Dante DiVincenzo, for example? I don't think this is as big of a deal. Obviously, I think getting a guy like Bogdan Bogdanovich is huge for your team. Um, and I definitely would think that – and I, I definitely thought, you know, the possibility of Milwaukee being the best team in the East if they get a guy like uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. The reality of the situation is that they were able to get a point guard. They were able to get Drew Holiday. They also were able to get DJ Augustine. So these are two very solid guards who have proven that they can play, and I think they definitely contribute to your team instantly. Um, Not to mention they also signed Bobby Portis from the Knicks. So that also helps. Uh, That also helps in your front court. So I know losing a guy like Wesley Matthews in hindsight is a, a very significant loss. But when you think about who, uh, who they were able to get, they were able to get Drew Holiday and DJ Augustine, and they also still have Dante DiVincenzo. Um, I would think also because y- you, you lose uh, George Hill, you also, um, you also lose Eric Bledsoe as well. I would, I would take DJ Augustine and Drew Holiday over George Hill and Eric Bledsoe any any day of the week, and I think this is a it's a huge help considering that the Bucks needed to fill a positional hole, and I feel like they were able to fill the positional hole with two guards who have proven that they can play. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I think that I mean as much as I love Drew, he's no Chris Paul, and I think that that would that would have been the splash that everybody was looking for. That was the splash that everybody was. Um, writing up, and that was the one that everybody thought would be the ticket to being able to bring back a guy like Giannis in terms of convincing him to sign the Supermax. Um, still hasn't signed it, still hasn't spoken on signing it, um, which still leaves the Bucks having to clinch their fists and hope that um, everything that they're doing is enough. 
to be able to convince a guy in Giannis Antetokounmpo to at least consider signing the deal, considering the fact that if he chooses elect, if he elects not to, he's walking away from an extra eighty million in the Milwaukee Bucks, and we're talking about a team that did mortgage a lot of their future in terms of trying to acquire Drew Holiday. They moved on to a lot of future first-round picks as well as a couple of second-round picks, and a lot of them were not protected, which puts them in a really bad position in terms of being able to make future moves as well as acquire future talent if a guy like Giannis goes out the door. It's also a little worse when you're talking about the fact that Drew Holiday is on the last year of his contract, which means he could potentially walk away and you mortgage a lot for a guy who could potentially be on the move his dang self. So that is a little struggly, and that was why I was a little reluctant to add them to this power ranking, but I felt as though the moves they made, especially with the fact that they were able to acquire maybe not a superstar level player, but definitely an underrated star um, star level player in Drew Holiday and did so without having to move on from Middleton, who can give you 20 and 10 on 50, 40, 90 shooting. I, I think that that's, I think that's something to hold your head up on. Um, before we move on to the East, uh, move on to the Western Conference, I want to finish discussing the Eastern Conference with the Philadelphia 76ers. This was a team that wasn't on either one of our lists initially, and now they're a team that's in the mix for both of us in terms of what we feel like is going on amongst the top of the league and especially the top of the East. We talked about it a lot in our winners and losers episode that we recorded right before this. Um, but how dangerous are the 76ers now that they look like from a roster construction standpoint, they're starting to make a lot more sense. I would say very dangerous. Um, They've gotten significantly better. As we mentioned, not only in this episode, but in the last episode with our winners and losers of the NBA offseason. the fact of the matter is that Philadelphia had a great draft by drafting Tyrese Maxey, Paul Reed and Isaiah Joe two guards that actually helped fill out some of the guard depth that Philadelphia was lacking. They were able to trade Josh Richardson for Seth Curry. They were able to get Danny green. And then they were also pick up. They also picked up uh, Terrence Ferguson from Oklahoma city. So I think filling out the guard depth that was much needed and then still being able to draft two solid guards, I think makes that makes them a much more dangerous team considering that this, they still have a, Joel Embiid, they still have Ben Simmons, they still have Tobias Harris. I think that Philadelphia has actually become a much better team than they were last season. I wouldn't say they are as good as they were in 2018. I would say that they are equally as good as that team. And I mean, I feel like Philly Loki won the offseason because of the fact that not only were they able to draft so well positionally, but also just the fact that they were able to move on from Josh Richardson, who who was asked to do so, like asked to do significantly more than what I think his skill set um, in terms of thriving at its maximum peak allows him to do i think that josh richardson when asked to be a shot creator and overall um ball handler slash facilitator for a team with a lot of stars like that is kind of asking him to do something that's a little bit beyond his three and d skill set so moving on from him to get a guy like seth curry who can be a spot-up shooter play off the dribble play without the ball are all good things to be able to work with i think danny green 
similar aspect in terms of the three and D wing. I think that despite what took place in terms of the playoffs and the finals, he's still one of the better three-point shooters in the league. That's huge. Obviously, Isaiah Joe, as you mentioned in the draft, Tyrese Maxey's another huge one. And I think the biggest thing is you automatically win executive of the year before the season starts because you, were you Daryl Morey, were the one who was able to successfully move on from Al Horford's horrible contract that was definitely not working in their favor and then from the from the chemistry aspect of the team itself wasn't even working on the court so the pay wasn't even worth the play and they were able to move on from that which I think was huge so I think that Philly has significantly put themselves in a situation where they can be a dangerous team in the Eastern Conference I think the biggest thing is just going to come down to health and how long they plan on keeping Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid together because of the fact that I think that has a limited shelf life, but I think their success is going to have a lot to do with whether or not that shelf life is in the immediate future, like prior to the trade deadline or something that we'll see after the season is over during a lot of the free agency bonanza that is the 2021 off season. So moving to the Western Conference, right? We are in a situation right now where the Battle of LA is very interesting because for you, you do not have the kind of belief that certain, if not most individuals have in the Los Angeles Lakers. Yet you believe that the Clippers improve slightly during this offseason um, from what we've discussed, um, not only off camera, but in a, a briefly in the winners and losers um, episode as well. So in terms of the Battle of LA, right? Which team do you because I have I have the Lakers at the, I have the Lakers at the top. But which team do you feel like within this offseason alone improved the most going into 2021? It's the Lakers and it's not even close. Um it's unfortunate that I say that because I actually picked the Clippers to win the NBA championship last season and they were ousted in seven games by the Denver Nuggets. Now, given what has happened in the off season, obviously re-signing Markeith Morris was, was huge for the Lakers. Re-signing Marquise, Marcus Morris was, was huge for the, the Clippers. They were also able to pick up Serge Ibaka as well. I think those were two good additions, but the Lakers not only lost Rajon Rondo, but they were able to, replace him I guess in a sense they were able to pick up another point guard in Dennis Schroeder who was coming off a great season in Oklahoma City they also ended up picking up Wesley Matthews from Milwaukee they also traded away Danny Green they also were able to pick up Marcus Saul and they were most importantly able to pick up Montrez Harrell from the Los Angeles Clippers and sign him to the Los Angeles Lakers which I thought was a huge shift in terms of the balance of LA teams. Um, I think the Lakers are now the best LA team. I didn't think that last year because I thought Los Angeles had a lot of depth. Honestly, I just don't think that it's, I, I don't think that it's, it's happening this year for the Los Angeles Clippers. 
I mean, I definitely agree with you that it's no, it's no contest that I feel like the Lakers improved more than the Clippers did. I mean, of course, on paper, really the only true improvement that the Clippers made was obviously bringing in Serge Ibaka, but the other one is trading for a guy in Luke Kennard, who I think was a really big pickup in terms of being able to move on from him and substitute Landry Shamit for Luke Kennard, who I feel like Luke Kennard on a championship caliber team can produce at a really high level and duplicate what he was able to do for Detroit, if not do so with better efficiency due to the fact that he's going to get a lot more open looks being on a team with a lot, a lot less responsibility as a primary scoring option. Um, the only thing with it is that, you know, when I initially wrote up this power rankings, I had the Clippers at one and it had a lot to do with the fact that Rajon Rondo was rumored to be going there. Of course, he selected to go to the Atlanta Hawks instead. I think that was a big hit to them. And obviously, although I could argue that Ibaka is a better fit for the Clippers in terms of the playoffs, I do agree with, I do fully wholeheartedly believe that, but I do still think that being that missing out on Montrez Harrell or losing Montrez Harrell to the team upstairs is significantly dangerous. And here's the reason why I think it hits even harder, not just from like a chemistry aspect or anything like that. I think the main thing is you're talking about the fact that the Lakers were somehow in one off season able to acquire the six man of the year and the runner up for six man of the year in the same off season. And why is that important? Um, because these are two guys that could potentially, you know, have a lot of starter minutes potentially, but I think they're two guys that are going to significantly come off the bench, um, playing that kind of Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell role, but in the form of Dennis Schroeder and Montrez Harrell. And that's important because this was a team similar to the Atlanta Hawks, ironically, that when LeBron James came off the court, it seems as though it was always a net negative. The team could no longer harbor an offense and it seemed to lose dang near every lead it ever had in terms of being able to compete with a lead when LeBron James would step off for even about two minutes of the game. By having two guys who literally specialized in coming off the bench as primary scoring options, primary scoring threats for their respective teams last season and pairing them together you're putting themselves in a position where the Clippers are going to be, where the, where the Lakers are going to be able to produce without, without LeBron on the ball and even without LeBron on the court, which I think significantly helps them in that department. I think picking up Mark Gasol and substituting him for Dwight Howard is pretty huge as well. The last Gasol brother that was on the Lakers was a two-time champ. I don't know if that's going to mean anything for Mark, but he's looking for his second chip. So going to have to see how much of a contributor he's able to be on this team. But I think the little things that they were able to pull off, I think the Wes Matthews one, personally, I believe it's a bit of a downgrade from Danny Green if we're looking at the overall concept of it. But I think you're still getting about 70% of what 70 to 80 percent of what Danny Green gave you in Wesley Wesley Matthews so I think that's also a really good sign as well I think losing Rondo losing Avery Bradley little hits here and there but still being able to have a guy in Kyle Kuzma still being able to retain KCP I think those are still little caveats that really help them out so I I agree with you I've 
turned over to the dark side a little bit in terms of thinking that the Lakers are the better team in the building. Um, and this offseason, I mean, we said it on multiple podcast episodes. The Lakers were going to have to be a team that was going to have to get significantly better and were not going to be able to try out the same roster they had last year if they wanted to be able to repeat. Well, they heard us. And they heard us loud and clear because they sure as heck made as many moves as possible to improve in a lot of much-needed areas. I think they did get significantly better. And I think – yeah, I, I truly believe that the, the shift in the Battle of Los Angeles has changed considering that the Lakers now have gotten significantly better. Um, I thought last year's team, they did make some slight improvements, but this year's team, I think they're – I think they're they're ready to go back to back. Yeah, man, definitely. Moving on to another team in the Western Conference that um, we kind of just have to. I don't know, man. It's it's a weird way to have to to phrase it, but I think Portland, although they weren't on our top five, they were right. They were right outside the mix, and this is a team that somehow got better without doing very much at all. I mean, it was very small, little things. Getting Rodney Hood back healthy is going to be huge. Resigning a guy in Carmelo and Anthony, who's probably going to have a bit of a reduced role, but still might be, be able to be a primary scoring option coming off the bench for that team. Huge. Gary Trent Jr. is coming off of a career year um, where he played significantly well in the, the NBA bubble, and I think that's going to earn him a lot of minutes next season. They traded for Robert Covington, which I think is the perfect fit for a team that was missing really any uh, any heartbeat at the small forward position outside of Carmelo Anthony last year. They were able to get an athletic wing in Derrick Jones Jr. who can play the three and the four. And they traded to get Enos Cantor back, which was huge because I think pairing him with Yusuf Nurkic is going to be really huge in their offensive rebounding department, not to mention their ability to score on the glass. And then Collins is a guy who they're not going to be able to have, you know, at tip off the beginning of the season, but he's a guy um, being Zach Collins who come mid January, end of January is going to come back and hopefully be a, a productive piece as well. So this is a team that I feel like did slight little things to improve and somehow those little things jump off the page as even bigger things when we're talking about being able to weave through a Western conference that if we look through it, hasn't necessarily improved. If not, maybe a lot of the teams towards the top have actually slid down. I think both of us can easily argue that the Thunder aren't going to be the same team they were this past year. The Rockets are another team that could potentially be off that list, especially with the fact that James Harden and Russell Westbrook may may not make it past the trade deadline. The Nuggets, I feel like, definitely did not improve. If anything, I felt like they got worse with losing out on Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumlee, who were primary forward front, front, front court guys for them, where they basically had to settle for bringing back a guy in Paul Millsap. I think that the Mavericks got significantly better, but they were just one, they were just one seed ahead of the Portland Trailblazers. I think that the Suns, and the Grizzlies, maybe even the Spurs, have all kind of went in the positive direction. And, of course, the Warriors are coming back. But I don't think the Warriors are going to be the team that I thought they were 
on my first version of this power rankings. So that puts them in a perfect position coming back as the fully healthy team who isn't too rested, like some of the teams that didn't make the NBA bubble, but aren't so far, but aren't so deep into the playoffs for the fact that they went, they went out in the first round, didn't go out so deep in the playoffs that they weren't able to rest up. So the fact that they're in this weird equilibrium where they also got healthy, improved their roster, and aren't that far removed from the last time they played basketball, high-level basketball at that, I think this is a team that could easily hit the ground running and scare a lot of the top, the top teams in the West from the minute we tip off the season. Is it fair to say that the shift between the Eastern and Western Conference has changed? slightly in favor of the Eastern Conference? I think it's a bit dangerous to say just because I feel like there's a significant amount of teams in the Western Conference that I feel like we can say are better than maybe some of the better teams in the East. But I think this is a – I can say this. Similar to how the Eastern Conference has come more back down to earth in terms of the pack being closer to one another – and it not just being the top four teams and everybody else, the Eastern Conference has improved significantly to the point that I feel as though that conference goes at least eight deep with two or three teams on the outside looking in, depending on certain circumstances. The Western Conference is a, is a conference that goes about 12 deep. And I think the gap between each team has significantly closed to the point that no team is head and shoulders above any other team. And I think that puts it in a circumstance where I would say that the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference in terms of their internal competition is as close as it's ever been in terms of the two conferences being competitive within one another amongst the top eight to 12 teams in their respective conferences. So I think... Portland is one of the best teams now in the West. I think Denver regressed. I think Utah is is staying the same right now. I think Houston is regressing. I think Oklahoma City we know now is a rebuilding team. I think that Portland really has a chance to be the second or third best team in the Western Conference. And the fact of the matter is that they didn't really do much. They traded for Robert Covington, which was huge. And they also were able to pick up Derek Jones Jr., who was a nice rotational player to have coming off the bench. And not to mention that a lot of their players weren't healthy last year, and they're getting them all back this year with, with the possible exception of Zach Collins. I think if you've ever heard the phrase, less is more, I think that would be the perfect way to describe Portland's offseason because they did not have to do much to basically be the second or third best team in the West. Yeah, man, I think that that's a really good point to make is the fact that this is a situation where they didn't overexert themselves. They definitely applied pressure to the positions that required the most need. They needed help in the rebounding department in the front court, despite the fact that Hassan Whiteside played as well as he did. From an offensive standpoint, he just doesn't give you the kind of punch that a guy like Enos Cantor does. Yusuf Nurkic, on his best days, can be the Portland Trailblazers' second best player on the team. 
and he's significantly improved on the offensive end, and he's been a rim um, rim um, protector for their team for the last couple of seasons. Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum are a duo that's proved that they can be relatively competitive in the playoffs and have led this team to a Western Conference um, champion um, championship appearance before. I think Gary Trent Jr. scratching the surface last season is a huge huge upside situation for them in terms of seeing the fact that he's made significant strides and has, got, has earned himself minutes. I think bringing back, at a guy, bringing back a guy in Carmelo Anthony who was able to hit timely shots and we praised about coming up big throughout those seeding games and um, being able to help close games, I think that's huge. And I think overall, of course, the biggest thing on top of it is I think Robert Covington might be the sneakiest trade pick um, in terms of moving uh, pieces this offseason because he's a guy who literally screams everything that they've ever needed. Once upon a time, they had a guy by the name of our um, Aruka Minu who was significantly um, potent defensively as a, as a guy who could guard the, other, the opposing team's best player but literally couldn't even hit layups once upon a time. And then you look at the other aspect of it for the Portland Trailblazers last season. You look at a guy in Carmelo Anthony, and although I wouldn't say he was some slouch on defense, he was primarily in the lineup for his offensive firepower. You're talking about a guy in Robert Covington who is the ultimate 3 and D wing who literally sits right in between the combinations of the two being Alfa Rucamino and um, Carmelo Anthony. He doesn't have the offensive repertoire that Carmelo has, but he has a spot-up shoot, uh, three-point shooting ability and ability to play off the ball that Carmelo Anthony can miss to a certain extent. And he might not be the all-elite big-body defender that Al Farouk Amino used to be. I think that uh, that he is a a great defender. I think Al Farouk Amino was a elite, elite defender um, because I think that was the only thing that he was essentially good at. And on the other end of the spectrum, Robert Covington is better on the offensive end while being maybe slightly worse, if not around the same tier defensively as Alfaro Camino. So I think they finally got the small forward position right in a space where they've struggled for a really, really long time. So I think they did some sneaky stuff, like you said, less is more that – Hopefully, we'll look like a lot more come the time when um, everything kicks off for the season. So, transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, who is one team that you believe that has improved this offseason? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.